Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Sentencing Commission Confidential. Um, for the last few episodes, I've been kind of walking through different parts of a much longer presentation that uh, myself and uh, Kathleen Grilly, the general counsel of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, had presented at the recent uh, SCCE Compliance and Ethics Institute. Um, and I recognized that uh, one thing that I haven't done in a long while, and I have to go back to one of the first episodes, I think, to try to find it, is a, a broad discussion for those of you who do not have a criminal justice background or who haven't uh, studied deeply uh, about the Sentencing Commission and still don't really know what the Sentencing Commission is, uh, what it what its primary role is, and why the heck it's involved in corporate compliance. Uh, so I think it's worthwhile to say, okay, uh, let's take a step back and let's talk about the commission and its role and how and why uh, uh, it uh, has become involved in uh, corporate compliance and what makes an effective ethics and compliance program. First of all, the U.S. Sentencing Commission was created uh, by the Sentencing Reform Act in 1984. Uh, the commission itself started operating, I believe, in around 1987, so it's been around uh, for the better part of uh, 30 years. And it's an independent agency, although administratively it operates out of the judicial judicial branch of our government. Um, the physical offices of the commission are actually located in the Thorogood Marshall Judicial Building, uh, which is on Capitol Hill uh, right across or catty corner to uh, Union Station right there in Washington, D.C. The commission itself uh, is run by commissioners and the commissioners all nine of them um, are either appointed or by uh, reason of their other roles are automatically members of the commission uh, seven are voting and two are non-voting the non-voting commissioners um, are, include a representative of the attorney general, usually an ass assistant or associate attorney general, uh, who sets on behalf of the Justice Department on behalf of the attorney general uh, and uh, does uh, work with and deliberate with the commissioners but does not vote. The other non-voting member is the current chair of the uh, parole commission. The U.S. The parole commission is uh, still around, although... Uh, Anybody who committed a federal offense after 1987 uh, was not eligible per, for parole, but we do still have some federal parolees uh, that, whose sentences occurred uh, prior to that that are being um, supervised by the uh, parole commission. And then uh, at some point, and I'm not sure when, uh, uh, people who uh, have committed crimes within the District of Columbia uh, which is uh, prosecuted by uh, the uh, local U.S. Attorney's Office, um, also, if they're on parole from those sentences, are supervised by the commission. So that's another non-voting member, the chair of that uh, commission. The other seven, the ones that vote, are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, like all presidential appointees or 
and they can be judges. Uh, there's always a majority of uh, federal judges, and they can be either appellate judges or district court or um, uh, trial court uh, federal judges, uh, but also others uh, who have uh, expertise or background uh, in criminal justice and sentencing, and that includes prosecutors, defense attorneys, uh, law professors, and others that have some some practitioner experience or, or, or uh, academic experience that relates to sentencing. So that's who is on the commission. And so what do they do and why do why does it apply to the compliance and ethics programs at uh, organizations? Well, the Sentencing Reform Act mandated that this commission, once it was set up, uh, put together uh, sentencing guidelines for sentencing both individuals and organizations. The organizational sentencing guidelines did not uh, officially get uh, drafted and come into effect until 1991. But when they did, as part of that process, there was a lot of thought that went into, well, how do we sentence organizations? Uh, well, traditionally, you know, organizations would be fined. You can't put an organization in federal prison, obviously. So the the impetus behind punishing an organization usually revolved around assessing a fine and restitution uh, in, in mandating that an organization uh, meet those requirements. It wasn't until 2004 that uh, Section 8B 2.1 that we talk a lot about um, on this podcast and elsewhere, where those seven hallmarks of an effective compliance program are housed, uh, was drafted. Uh, and that expressly put forward the elements of an effective ethics and compliance or compliance and ethics program and establish the responsibilities for different parts of the organization, including uh, those high level officials and and, uh, day to day operational personnel that were responsible for the program, as well as the responsibility of the governing authority of the organization, the board of directors of the uh, organization. And that was all established in 2004. And the reasoning behind this is, uh, again, the purpose of the sentencing guidelines is to put together standards for federal judges when they're uh, sentencing uh, individuals and organizations. Well, when you're sentencing an organization, it made sense, along with assessing a fine and ordering any appropriate restitution, that if that organization was going to continue on as a going concern and did not have an effective ethics and compliance program, as part of the probation, it made sense that a judge could order uh, uh, an, an effective program. So there needed to be standards for that, but also for organizations that did have an effective program, the other thing that the sentencing guidelines do is help calculate a sentence. And that sentence will include the fine and, and, and other um, aspects of, of, of a sentence for an organization, but primarily the fine. And uh, to calculate that sentence, you had to take into consideration both the aggravating factors, the things that um, happened during this offense uh, that made uh, that uh, contributed to the, the harm caused by the offense, but also mitigating factors that perhaps uh, ameliorated some of those potential effects. And one of those things would be an effective ethics and compliance program. So to be able to give credit to an organization so to speak, for having an effective program, you have to decide what an effective program looks like. And so that's where these standards came from. It was trying to determine what would make an effective program that would uh, garner credit for an organization 
uh, that have been charged with an offense. And that all came out in uh, 2004. And then in 2010, uh, when I uh, was spending uh, some time at the general counsel's office there at the, the uh, Sentencing Commission, we uh, went back and we revised the organizational sentencing guidelines. And I've talked about these revisions many times in the past and, and strengthened uh, the relationship between the operational personnel of the organization uh, who actually are responsible for the day-to-day uh, of the compliance program and the governing authority of the organization and uh, clarified what that relationship would be between the person or persons responsible for the day-to-day operation of the program and the governing authority of the organization. The thought behind this was uh, to try to further strengthen the conduit, if you will, between the governing authority of the organization, which is usually a board of directors, usually a subcommittee, an audit committee of the board of directors or a compliance committee, and the person or persons with the uh, responsibility for compliance in the organization. Um, as we've noted before in prior podcasts, um, the sentencing guidelines doesn't call out a particular title. It doesn't talk about chief compliance officers or compliance officers or any title. It talks about the role. It talks about the person or persons responsible for the operational or day-to-day activities of the program. That's one uh, uh, person that's defined in, in, the, uh, uh, in the sentencing guidelines. And the other is a high-level official who has overall responsibility for the program. So really, there's two different roles that are defined within Chapter 8 of the Sentencing Guidelines, the Organizational Sentencing Guidelines. And what the amendments in 2010 really focused on was this relationship between the person with that operational or day-to-day responsibility and the governing authority. And what it talked about uh, was that to get credit, to get this uh, 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 good credit when your organization happens to have been charged and uh, convicted of a federal sentence, a federal crime rather, and is facing federal sentencing, uh, to get that mitigation credit, you needed to have this relationship, this direct reporting relationship. And I'm not going to spend too much time on the nuances there because we have other podcasts I've done in the past and I probably will do some in the future uh, about those nuances around what that relationship looks like. But that's where uh, it comes from. And that was uh, part of revising the earlier uh, organizational guideline standards from the original guidelines and from the 2004 amendments was to further strengthen that relationship. Uh, it also was to alleviate uh, a potential issue that uh, the commission perceived around getting the credit when the organization had had uh, misconduct that involved uh, substantial authority personnel or or, or, or people uh, acting within their authority within the organization. Uh, to boil this down really succinctly, it was impossible prior to 2010 uh, under the guidelines to get credit for an effective program if somebody was acting within their authority when they, when they uh, engaged in the misconduct that led to the criminal, criminal case, right? So it's pretty hard to imagine a circumstance where uh, somebody was acting outside of their authority uh, to commit uh, f- fraud, for example. Uh, it happens, but but most of the time somebody has decided to uh, engage in misconduct and they use their authority to to effectuate that misconduct. And so we had this situation where 
even if a company uncovered this misconduct, and even if a company uh, did their best to remediate it, uh, and then uh, took all the information and went uh, to the Department of Justice or the regulators involved and handed it over and said, we found this, we took care of it, here are the circumstances. If if they found themselves uh, being sentenced in front of a federal judge, they would get no credit because uh, if, if, if a person uh, acting within their authority, a substantial authority personnel, uh, was involved in the misconduct. So what happened in 2010 is that the commissioners decided that they really wanted to reinforce the relationship and some of the other small changes that were made uh, and really uh, try to increase the stature and the resources and um, uh, the conduit I was talking about between uh, operational compliance and the uh, uh, board of directors or governing authority of the organization. And to do that, they added this carrot. Uh, if you do all of that, if you have a program that meets the standards in Chapter 8, uh, if you have a program where uh, the person or persons with operational authority have uh, a direct reporting relationship uh, with the board of directors, um, then you can still get credit even when uh, an individual with substantial authority has engaged in in the misconduct that led to the to the um, to the case against the organization. So this was a way of providing a carrot uh, and and providing. Uh, a, a much broader application of the mitigation credit for having an effective compliance program and the guidelines than what had previously uh, been possible. Um, and I don't know, uh, the, the Sentencing Commission doesn't release these statistics all the time, but I do know that back in the 2015 timeframe, uh, and we're talking about the guidelines at that point had been in, a, in effect, the organizational guidelines had been in effect since 1991. So uh, the, they'd been in effect for uh, 14, 15 years at that point. Uh, at that point, after 15 years, uh, call it, of, of enforcement uh, and use of Chapter 8 and sentencing organizations, I think there had been a total of like four organizations that had ever received credit. Um, and I think the total number of organizations at that time that had been sentenced under the organizational sentencing guidelines was something on the order of like 3,000 organizations, give or take. So it was a very, very small percentage of organizations that were getting this credit. Uh, and that was part of the impetus for the amendments in 2010, which uh, would allow an organization to get credit uh, when they operated uh, in good faith and otherwise had an effective program, even if they had uh, a substantial authority personnel involved in the offense. So this gives you a good idea of why, why we've landed where we've landed, why we have the Sentencing Commission involved in organizational compliance and ethics. It's all down to uh, trying to figure out an effective way for uh, sentencing judges uh, to potentially implement uh, a, an effective compliance program where an organization has been involved in misconduct. And also give credit where credit is due to provide mitigation credit to organizations that do do the right thing and have an effective program, even though uh, misconduct has taken place. And that's really what 
uh, you know, the, the, those dual tracks of having some standards in place for judges to follow when they need to uh, sentence organizations and make sure that moving forward they're going to head towards an effective program if they don't already have one. But on the flip side, uh, recognize uh, the resources and hard work and commitment of organizations that actually do have an effective program but still uh, have a failure because that's going to happen, particularly uh, when you have an organization of you know a couple of thousand or, or maybe tens of thousands of people, misconduct is going to happen. And some of that misconduct might rise to the level of being criminal conduct. Uh, it may uh, rise to the level of potentially binding the organization uh, for that criminal conduct. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the organization doesn't have an effective program and doesn't meet these standards. It just means that uh, uh, there, you know, every every program has gaps, and there, there's a re- and this is really the recognition of that, right? That that even a program uh, that was put together with uh, good intention, uh, that was reasonably uh, managed by the um, both the compliance personnel, but also reasonably managed managed from the perspective of the governing authority and the executives of the organization, still could have a failure, and even in those circumstances. Uh, the commission wanted to make sure uh, that mitigation was still a possibility for an organization that was otherwise a good actor. So that's what's behind it. That's why where it came from. That's uh, kind of a, a broad synopsis of, of the individuals involved in the process. Um, I think I've talked in the past in the podcast about the amendment process. I'm going to do that really quickly now. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but you should know that there is an amendment process at the Sentencing Commission. It is a rulemaking body, and like a lot of federal agencies that make rules, uh, they have a very um, uh, orderly and uh, uh, well-maintained process for updating sentencing the sentencing guidelines, including uh, the uh, Organizational Sentencing Guidelines, or Chapter 8 of the Sentencing Guidelines. As I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, there hasn't been a significant amendment uh, to change uh, Chapter 8 since uh, the amendment in November of 2010, but that does not mean that there would not be potentially an amendment in the future. So how does this process work? Well, uh, usually sometime in the summer, June or July, uh, the commission will publish some proposed priorities, uh, and those will be published in the Federal Register, uh, made public. Um, you can also find this any of this information about the Sentencing Commission is available uh, on the website for the Sentencing Commission, which is ussc.gov. There's great, uh, one of the earlier podcasts in this series, I was talking about sentencing data. You can find sentencing data for organizations at that same website, ussc.gov. When the uh, priorities come out for the Sentencing Commission in, in that uh, summer time frame, uh, they'll also set a, uh, a notice period where the public can comment. And during that pro- time period, you could, as an individual or an organization, uh, you can uh, uh, send public comment to the Sentencing Commission saying, I really like uh, this priority that you set out here, but maybe you want to change it, you know, a little bit here, or here's another priority that you haven't thought of. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about incentives uh, for Chapter 8 of the Sentencing Guidelines, for example? Uh, and uh, all that information is uh, gathered by the staff of the Sentencing Commission, presented to the Sentencing Commissioners, and sometime around August, 
uh, they will, um, once that timeline has expired for receiving public comment, they will publish their final priorities for the amendment cycle of that particular year. Uh, once those final priorities have been published, then internally the staff of the uh, Sentencing Commission will get to work uh, uh, and start uh, doing research, review, um, uh, pulling data, uh, querying uh, uh, any kind of expertise outside the organization they, they might need, um, and working with stakeholders, uh, including those uh, uh, I mentioned earlier, the, the Department of Justice um, and others. Uh, to uh, put to, to try to take those priorities and put them to action uh, for uh, potential amendments to the sentencing guidelines or reports. Oftentimes, uh, the priorities will also involve the Sentencing Commission putting together a report. Uh, they haven't done a report, I believe, on uh, the organizational sentencing guidelines or organizational data in quite some time. I think there have been some small, smaller um, articles that have been put together over the years. Uh, but uh, it's been quite a while since they'd undertaken a large report. That might also be something uh, that somebody could ask for uh, during public comment or suggest that the commission investigate uh, during public comment in, the, in that uh, summer time frame and uh, perhaps uh, uh, get, uh, uh, get them to produce uh, or work on. So from, uh, say, uh, late August, September, all the way through the end of the year, they're going to be working on... Uh, any kind of proposed amendments to the sentencing guidelines or reports or any other uh, responses to their uh, proposed priorities. In January, uh, usually, uh, the commission will publish proposed amendments. Uh, uh, for instance, in 2010, in, in the beginning of 2010, uh, the commission published some proposed amendments to Chapter 8, uh, and after that point, there's a set period, again, of notice uh, for public comment. We received, I, th I want to say, um, the, the greatest number, uh, uh, to that point, the greatest number of uh, individual pieces of public comment on a pending uh, amendment that the commission had received at that point. I think subsequent to that, they may have received more on uh, some other amendments, but uh, at that time uh, it was quite uh, quite vo quite voluminous. We got a lot of public comment back on the proposed amendments uh, in 2010. Uh, the commission will consider uh, the public comment uh, in response to those proposed amendments, uh, and for the next couple of months, uh, we'll revise. There may be public hearings. Um, usually, those will happen sometime in the springtime, March, April timeframe. Uh, in 2010, I can't remember exactly when we had a public hearing, but we did have a public hearing uh, where we brought in uh, Joe Murphy from SCCE, uh, Dr. Pat Hardned uh, from uh, now ECI, uh, and other experts uh, uh, and uh, industry representatives to talk about uh, uh, corporate compliance and the proposed amendments. And again, that is a public hearing that's held in, in Washington, D.C. at the Sentencing Commission uh, and sometime in the in the spring time frame. And then finally, sometime, usually before the end of April uh, or in the mid middle of April, the commissioners will deliberate and then they will vote on whether the proposed amendments to the guidelines will take effect or not. Uh, they are sent to uh, Congress, uh, to both the House and the Senate. Uh, the amendments have to be delivered on May 1st. Uh, the amendments uh, become effective on November 1st, uh, 
assuming Congress does not uh, take action to affirmatively disapprove the amendments. So they have the effect of uh, binding law uh, if Congress does not take action between May 1st and November 1st. Um, and it's very rare. I think it's only happened once, perhaps, uh, in, in, in the history of the sentencing guidelines, and it didn't have anything to do with the organizational guidelines, where Congress has taken action uh, to uh, interrupt that process. Usually, whatever goes up to the Hill on May 1st becomes a part of the sentencing guidelines. So now you understand the process. You understand who these individuals, these commissioners are. They're typically federal judges or other uh, experts uh, or, or, or professionals from the criminal justice system. Um, some of them have experience uh, uh, with compliance. Uh, some of them do not. Um, it's a mixed bag. And um, in 2010, we, there happened to be a couple of commissioners who had some strong experience with uh, compliance at organizations, including now uh, federal judge Beryl Howell. Um, but um, they uh, are often guided by uh, the expertise of the staff and the expertise of those that present public comment. And um, when we were in Washington, D.C. a month ago, uh, when I made the presentation uh, in front of SCCE with uh, Kathleen Grilly from the Sentencing Commission, uh, once again encouraged people to come forward and uh, provide public comment uh, uh, if there are things that uh, those in the compliance field would like to see clarified or, or, or um, improved in the sentencing guideline standards. Or, as I said, if, uh, if, if, uh, if, if it would be perhaps helpful for uh, the commission to provide data in the form of a report um, about uh, uh, compliance and the effect of the sentencing guideline standards on compliance. Uh, to the extent that they have that data or can get that data from other associated organizations. There are lots of things that can be done or asked of. Uh, it may not happen, but uh, certainly it can be uh, part of the prior can potentially be part of the priorities. So that's how the commission works. Uh, that's why the commission is involved in compliance. And that's where uh, those sentencing guideline standards that we often talk about uh, for effective uh, compliance programs come from. So I hope that's helpful. I hope these last few uh, uh, podcasts in this series have been helpful in, um, uh, in illuminating a little bit about the process and illuminating a little bit about why the Sentencing Commission is, is so vitally important and still important. See, this is the thing. This is the thing that... Um, I, it gets me a, a little upset when people talk about, for example, uh, the DOJ memo um, that was revised earlier this year uh, from 2017. Uh, DOJ memos come and go as we see. <laughs> the one we have now is very different uh, from the one uh, we had uh, uh, eight months ago. And uh, the one we had in 2017 was very different from the guidance we had from the 2012 FCPA guide. And before the FCPA guide, we had, uh, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Manual and a few other memos uh, that came and went that talked uh, here and there about compliance. Memos come and go. The Sentencing Commission has this process year in, year out. The sentencing guidelines are, uh, are not going to go away anytime soon. 
they survived uh, their constitutional challenge in the Supreme Court, um, uh, you know, over a decade ago. Um, they're not going away. The, the organizational guidelines will remain. And for the purposes of most of us, uh, our organization is not being sentenced anytime soon. They're standards anyway. Um, and the, if, the, if there is something that we might garner from adjusting those standards as we move forward, because standards don't always you know, stay exactly the same forever, then uh, it behooves us all to understand this process. Because the only way those hallmarks get changed is through the Sentencing Commission. That's the only way they're going to change. That's the only way they're going to improve. That's the only way we're going to get more information, for example, about incentives. Uh, the Department of Justice certainly can tell us what they expect around incentives, and that's important. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but that's the William Barr uh, November 2019 uh, 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 Department of Justice. What does the Department of Justice in 2022 say? We don't know, and it can change. You know, it, it behooves us to remember that, for example, the uh, uh, this, this, the compliance memorandum that came out in April of 2019, there was absolutely no notice that it was coming out. It was going to change. There was no public comment. <laughs> there was no uh, priorities published. It was not. It's not a process that you have any any hope of having any kind of uh, influence or input on. That is not true for the, the process at the U.S. Sentencing Commission. That's what you really need to understand. And, and I think it's important. I think it really is important for us to all understand this. Because if we all, everybody who's listening to this podcast, just a few hundred of you every week, um, which is, uh, you, you know, thousands over time, and everybody who uh, you know, if we all were to... Um, be more involved in the process that, 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 that is so fundamental to our profession, so fu fundamental to corporate compliance. I think that's only to not only our benefit and our organization's benefit, but to, to the benefit of the Sentencing Commission, that they are not sort of out there uh, hearing crickets uh, from the uh, population of professionals who have to live those hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines day in, day out. It is it, really important that we, um, I think, as we move forward, and, and I include myself among this because I'm as guilty as anybody else in, in not really paying attention to the Sentencing Commission, perhaps as much as I should. But it, but it really is important that all of us are involved because it is so fundamentally important to uh, the underlying standards that make a successful program. So I hope that was helpful. Um, I do have a little bit of housekeeping here. As always, if you have questions, if you have comments, concerns, uh, ideas for future topics, please do get in touch. You can find contact information at compliancebeat.com, uh, moreheadconsulting.com, or you can email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. I also have a webinar on code of conduct best practices. It's coming, code of conduct best practices that is coming up next week. That's uh, uh, with my uh, partners at the Clear Law Institute. It's going to be at uh, 12 Central, 1 Eastern on November the 7th, which is next Thursday. 
um, and that is Updating Your Code of Conduct Best Practices. It'll be about an hour long uh, webinar on the uh, Code of Conduct uh, revision and updating process soup to nuts. So uh, I'll put the information for um, registering for that webinar in the show notes of this podcast, or you can also just go to clearlawinstitute.com, search November 7th, uh, search Code of Conduct, and you'll probably come up with the registration page as well. So until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.